This is hell. All right then. In order to understand any story reported in the news, to fully appreciate that story's meaning, you need to have historical context so you can place the ideas that you are about to be introduced to within some kind of framework so you can appreciate the gravity of what is being learned. I mean, it makes sense, right? But what happens when the audience you are telling that story to is in denial about that historical context, even that history? How can you inform an audience that is unwilling to accept historical truths? For instance, how can you relate any news about any issue involving indigenous peoples if you are unwilling to accept the fact that the United States is founded upon the apocalypses of colonization, settlement, and genocide? And covering any indigenous issue must a journalist first and always remind the audience that yes the united states is founded on indigenous genocide settled on indigenous land where the colonized people still live surrounded by their colonizers where that genocide is still a part of everyday life and every decision is steep in that crime against humanity do they have to reintroduce that in covering any story On any indigenous issue, must the journalist first make certain their audience understands and accepts the most obvious history there is for anyone in the United States? And that is the story of how the United States occupies stolen land. We'll try to figure out exactly how difficult it is to cover stories of indigenous peoples and issues. Stories that are often incompatible with both print and broadcast journalism. In a few, when we have the return of writer Julian Brave Noisecat, who wrote the Columbia Journalism Review article... Apocalypse Then and Now. Julian is Vice President of Policy and Strategy with Data for Progress Narrative, Change Director of the Natural History Museum, and a fellow of the Type Media Center, NDN Collective, and the Center for Humans and Nature. This is Julian's third appearance on This Is Hell. Julian was on most recently in July of last year, 2020, when we spoke with him about the historic McGirt versus Oklahoma case in which the United States Supreme Court ruled much of the eastern portion of the state of Oklahoma is, by treaty, Native American land. Find out more about Julian at julianbravenoisecat.com and follow Julian on Twitter at J the letter J, Noise Cat. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for the weekend? Hmm. Yeah, finding my button. (laughs) (laughs) We got a gigantic list of books coming out February, March, April, May. Uh, So it's like something to look forward to keep me going for the next few months. uh, (laughs) Just talking about books. My plans for this weekend are exactly what my plans were last weekend as we got absolutely nothing done that we hoped we could have we were supposed to get done last weekend and everything we planned got derailed by my girlie's job. She had to work all last weekend, but she finally finished this huge project and we are hoping against all hope that we can actually do the things we were supposed to do <laughs> have already done last week. So I'm going to be hopefully getting new shoes and a new office chair, both of which should help my aching back. And on top of that, we're finally taking down our tree, which will likely not be good for my back. But Alex, if you have not heard, and I hope you have not, Tucker Carlson's take on the GameStop story is the hottest of hot takes. I don't know what any of those things are, and I'm going to try really hard not <laughs> You posted to. the, uh, on This Is Hell, the GameStop story. That's why I was bringing it up. No, I didn't. You didn't? No. There is something. Is somebody else posted something on our uh, page about a GameStop story? But 
If you've not heard, so-called retail or small investors bought stocks of GameStop that had been mired in a five-year slump while hedge funds were short-selling the stock and making money by betting on the stock's constant decline. So retail investors organized online and bought up GameStop. The price soared. Uh, the small-time buyers made a killing, and the hedge funds were devastated as their bets on devastation did not pay off. So, last night, Tucker Carlson was explaining how hedge funds were complaining about the situation, and in doing so, the small-time investors were kicked off the platform they used to organize, and I think it was called Discord. All this led to Tucker Carlson equating those who are being deplatformed over buying GameStop stock to those who have been deplatformed for other reasons, and he offered the stunning quote, That's right, if you're not a hedge fund... You're a racist. <laughs> That's how desperate Fox News is right now. If you bought GameStop stock and the platform you use to organize is no longer telling you or allowing you to use that platform, according to Tucker Carlson, it is akin to being called a racist. Fox will do anything to play down racism because there's nothing a racist hates more than someone calling them a racist. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? And it's not, you're a racist. I can tell you that right now. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff will be watching The Detectives. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. This week's question is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell, and that's exactly what we want to be. And some of you are sending your suggestions of, of what grief we should be witnessing with you. Adam sent a suggestion to Chuck at thisishell.com, writing, You should guest request for the book Reckoning, Journalism's Limits and Possibilities by Candace Callison and Mary Lynn Young. Julian Brave Noise Cat cites his conversation with Professor Callison in the Columbia Journalism Review piece that you are doing today. Thanks, Adam. As the publisher's website explains, the book is about how journalists know what they know, who gets to decide what good journalism is, and how we know when it's done right. In other words, it's all the questions that journalists so rarely ask. So, yes, Adam, this does sound great for the show. Thanks for the suggestion. We also got a message from Jason who says, have you had an MMT expert on your show before? If not, please do so and help bring attention to this very important information about how our economy works. I would suggest trying to get Stephanie Kelton on the show. She's a good speaker, well-respected, and has an impressive resume. 
if she's not available, there are many other qualified speakers. So, Alex, why have you and I never pursued an interview with someone about modern monetary theory? Because for the life of me, I have no idea why I am incredibly uninterested in this topic. And I need someone to tell me why I should be interested in this topic. Do you have any idea why we haven't pursued an interview on that? I wouldn't have enough money to be interested in anything monetary. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a very good point. Uh, and I've even talked to Doug Heidenwood a couple of times about having him on the show to talk about it, and then I just lost interest in the topic. He does have a good article out about GameStop, however. Coming up, the problem with reporting on indigenous issues. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. During this week's moment, as I said, Jeff will be watching the detectives. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? The person with our favorite answer gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page, Email it to us, tweet it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. How do you report on an issue that is not compatible with commonly held perceptions or beliefs, even challenging long-embraced myths that may be the foundation of your worldview? What happens to our understanding of history when we allow colonization, settlement, and genocide to erase the existence of those who were here before European occupation. And without that historical context, can we understand what unique challenges indigenous people face today? Returning to this is held to help us better understand our lack of understanding of indigenous issues. Writer Julian Brave Noisecat wrote the Columbia Journalism Review article, Apocalypse Then and Now. Welcome back to This is Held, Julian. Thanks so much for having me. So good to be back. Julian is Vice President of Policy and Strategy with Data for Progress, Narrative Change Director of the Natural History Museum, and a fellow at the Type Media Center, NDN Collective, and the Center for Humans and Nature. You can find out more about Julian at julianbravenoisecat.com. Follow Julian on Twitter at jnoisecat. That's the letter J followed by the words noisecat. This is Julian's third appearance on This Is Hell. He was on most recently in July of 2020 when we spoke with him about the historic McGirton versus Oklahoma case in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that much of the eastern por portion of the state of Oklahoma is, by treaty, Native American land. So you start by writing how in March of 2019, HuffPost sent you to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, home of the Aglala Lakota Nation in South Dakota, to cover the work of an affordable housing program. But a week before you arrived, a different story began to unfold. The reservation was pummeled by a blizzard. Gusts reached 70 miles an hour. The snowbank along the highways towered over the cars driving past. Then the storm became a bomb uh, cyclone. The snow melted and the reservation's creeks overflowed. Pine Ridge sits on plains that are typically arid, so these extreme weather events were unusual. A result of shifting jet streams and increasing ocean evaporation driven by climate change. I know your article is on the challenges for journalists covering indigenous stories, but before we get to that, are indigenous peoples any more or less vulnerable to the effects of climate change? What impact does where indigenous people live or the resources the indigenous have or the experiences that they've had with apocalypse, what impact does that have on their potential vulnerability from climate change? Oh man, you're uh you're narrating my article better than I could at this point. <laughs> um, that was gripping. Thank you. I, sometimes I wish my prose was, was that exciting. Um, let's see. So 
you know, indigenous peoples, as I, I'm sure your listeners are aware, but if not, um, I will let them know right now that native people are among, um, you know, the, the most suffering in all of the sort of statistical categories of suffering in this country, you know, whether you measure it by income, uh, you know, health outcomes, uh, you know, Native people are unfortunately falling to the bottom of, of many, if not all of these categories among, um, among racial groups. And, you know, the, the circumstances that we live in um, on reservations, but also in cities, um, also make us more vulnerable to things like climate change. Um, so there are a number of tribes in the United States um, that are, you know, uh, their lands, either their reservation lands or their broader territories are um, being threatened by climate change through sea level rise, through wildfires, um, you know, through extreme weather, as, as I experienced on the Pine Ridge Reservation in, in South Dakota. And, um, you know, that can have and will continue to have increasingly devastating consequences for Native people who, you know, as I was saying earlier, are already vulnerable to a number of socioeconomic, um, socioeconomic factors. And, you know, this is going to be an increasingly um, important feature of, of not just society here in the United States, but globally, you know, the people who in general have contributed the least to climate change are one of the great tragedies of, of this phenomenon is that those same people are going to be the most harmed by it. You write how during the storm, I watched residents at a, of a nearby housing development walk along the highway to the closest post office to collect rations from the National Guard. I checked Twitter and learned that Governor Christy Noem, a Republican, had driven onto the reservation with a convoy of military vehicles carrying potable water. She was not welcome. Just two weeks earlier, Noam had passed a bill that held protesters opposing projects like the Keystone XL oil pipeline liable for what the state called riot boosting. The Oglala were among the tribes opposed to the pipeline and the bill. What the hell is riot boosting? <laughs> uh, I think that it's a conservative uh, spin on the First Amendment, our, our right to free speech and protest. And um, in states like South Dakota, um, but also other states where uh, there have been significant protests against uh, fossil fuel developments, there has been a very scary phenomenon wherein state legislatures are passing laws to criminalize um, our First Amendment rights to, to free speech and protest. And uh, South Dakota is among those states that has passed a law like that um, due to the sort of decade-long resistance against the Keystone XL pipeline, a pipeline that actually was um, the, the presidential permits for it were actually just revoked by uh, President Biden last week. Uh, how do residents of Pine Ridge, how do they feel about a representative of the U.S. government riding in with the military is it seen as the governor would hope to be seen and that i assume would be as a sign of some kind of heroic generosity would the people of pine ridge view this as a offering that's all related to kindness and charity or they view it in some other way no you know there's been um since governor gnome was was elected uh, a lot of tension between um she's a very conservative governor uh, and the tribes in her state, which tend to be uh, more democratic leaning and also, uh, you know, have a, 
a long, long history of treaty claims that uh, the state of South Dakota has outright denied and trampled upon. Um, and so, you know, I think that Nome, uh, I don't think that it's, it's any stretch to say that Nome is seen as sort of an extension of a history of quite brutal colonization um, that occurred in, in sort of the, the heart of the continent that occurred against uh, Lakota and Dakota peoples who now live um, on reservations predominantly in the state of South Dakota, but also beyond it. And, you know, when, you know, she backed the riot boosting bill, which it's worth adding here that she um, actually tried to jam it through the state legislature within like, I think she introduced the bill and then they passed it in less than three days or something in, incredibly um, insane like that. Uh, and, you know, also uh, she has, since the pandemic, I mean, this is obviously before my report, this is after my reporting in, in South Dakota, uh, during the pandemic, she has, you know, challenged um, roadblocks that various uh, tribal nations in South Dakota have put up uh, to protect their very vulnerable population from, uh, you know, the coronavirus. And she has been, um, you know, at odds with them on on their ability to control who comes in and out of their their reservation lands. So, you know, I think that there there's a sense, I guess, that these tensions, um, you know, that were foundational to this country, are you know past history that the frontier closed a long time ago. Um, but in in places like South Dakota, that is far from the case. You also, uh, when seeing Nome arrive with the military, you write here before me in one scene where the interlocking forces of genocide, ecological apocalypse, resistance and repression, the imperial roots of the climate crisis and their colonial fallout. How is climate change, in your opinion, rooted in imperialism? What, what do we miss in understanding imperialism or climate change when we don't see that connection? Oh man, there's there's like multiple books that could be written about this, but I mean, from a historical perspective, um, the industrial revolution paired with the uh, opening up and taking of uh, indigenous lands here in North America, but also ar around the world, um, is lays sort of the groundwork for uh, the global economic system that um, you know leads to industrial global capitalism that produces climate change, and key to that you know system and key a key driver of climate change uh, is access to you know the resources that exist on those lands, um, and of course chief among them um, are fossil fuels. Um, you know fossil fuels are a really key source of energy in an industrialized form of capitalism. And uh, they happen to be in places like North America, uh, located very often on lands that uh, are either covered by treaties or um, in some way claimed by you know, the first peoples of this continent. And so that's what brings you, um, even today, you know, we're not talking about like the 1800s here, uh, you know, significant um, conflicts over uh, claims to land and access to resources that result in things like the movement against the Dakota access pipeline, you know, at, at Standing Rock. And, you know, that, that story is, is still very much, um, very much alive today. And as we started this interview, um, it is actually, you know, going to take on new valences in the era of, um, you know, climate crisis, wherein 
many of those same nations whose uh, resources and lands were taken to fuel uh, you know, the capitalist economy are now going to have to deal with the fallout of um, you know, the refuse of that economy in the form of greenhouse gas emissions and the greenhouse gas effect, uh, which is you know, leading to a number of uh, environmental factors, extreme weather conditions, you know, heat islands, et cetera, that are, that are going to disproportionately harm um, indigenous people. So, uh, you know, for, for natives, it's been, a, it's been a rough number of centuries here and it doesn't look like they're necessarily going to, to get better in this 21st century. Well, can climate change be addressed then, Julian, without addressing imperialism? Because it would seem like imperialism is an impossible thing to address, and especially for journalists to point it out when they're reporting on indigenous issues. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a difference between could and should, right? So I think climate change could be addressed without, um, you know, looking at these deeper issues of uh colonial resource extraction. You know, I think that there are, uh, there's a long running critique of forms of, uh, you know, green capitalism that uh, might in some ways, um, you know, prolong uh, the sort of unequal imperial relations between indigenous peoples and, and settler societies and, and um, you know, capitalists. Uh, but it's, it's also, you know, possible, I think, to start to actually address uh, some of these legacies of colonization here through the fight against climate change. And, you know, I think it's it's worth pointing out, for example, that the day before President Biden uh, released his executive orders on climate change yesterday, you know, he uh, put out a number of statements on racial equity, including, you know, strengthening consultation with tribal nations on economic development projects, projects like the Dakota, Dakota Access and Keystone XL pipelines, um, and that, you know, steps like that, while, you know, you know, only sort of um, measures that are not fully getting us, obviously, towards a more equal footing before between the first peoples of this land and the federal government, um, you know, I think are a, a step towards a, a less um, extractive and antagonistic relationship. Um, and of course, you know, doing things like revoking the permits for the Keystone XL pipeline, you know, something that followed on the uh, over a decade of, of activism uh, led by native people and native nations, you know, signal that um, despite the vastly unequal circumstances uh, and resources that native people have and power that native people have in our society, um, you know, actions against uh, things that are, are, are wrong and unequal and that threaten, you know, our communities and, and, and people, um, you know, can be effective. And so I think that, uh, you know, in the same way that, that Native people were fighting for our land, our rights, our dignity, um, you know, for hundreds of years, you know, that, that struggle is continuing on uh, today. And it is, it is possible that, that we can actually win victories. I think people, you know, always think that Indians lose. I think this country's founding story in some ways can be summarized as Indians losing. Um, but, you know, today we're, we're continuing to, to push for what's right and what's ours. And, um, you know, along the way, we're getting some surprising and, and important victories.
You describe how the original assignment from Huffington Post that sent you to Pine Ridge was to cover the work of an affordable housing program, but you write how you could not in good conscience write the story that my Huff Post editors had assigned a 1,500-word article treating the housing program as a worthy but isolated effort felt like a betrayal of the material I had gathered on the ground. As an indigenous journalist, I decided the only appropriate way to tell a story like this was to simultaneously hold to frame poverty, climate change, and resilience, and to layer all this on the history of colonization, settlement, and genocide, one apocalypse on top of another. What does it reveal to you about, let's say, a non-Indigenous reporter is assigned to the story and that they ignore the history of colonization, settlement, and genocide. What does that reveal to you either about the reporter or the journalism that they practice? The I'm not sure I understood the last part of the question. So it's about... So what does it say to you about a, a non-Indigenous reporter who ignores that history of colonization, settlement, oh, and genocide okay. in their coverage? What does it yeah. say? Does it reveal something inherent within the kind of journalism that they practice? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. Um, well, firstly, I would say that uh, my experience with HuffPost in in that assignment, I think, is a very common one in journalism. You know, you, um, particularly as a freelancer, can get dispatched uh, to some part of the country to write some specific story, and you know, you show up, and the story that you've been sort of asked to write is not the story that's unfolding in front of you. Um, so I think that that's just a more common uh, journalistic experience beyond just Native people. You know, I think the thing about it actually was, I, I don't particularly fault um, non-Native journalists for not recognizing the persistence of these structures and, um, you know, sort of an ap apocalyptic experience in Native communities. Um, I actually only started thinking about uh, the indigenous experience as a post-apocalyptic experience. Very recently, I was actually in, um, I was at a like literature festival uh, in Paris a couple years ago. And one of the guys who was invited was this um, Blackfoot filmmaker uh, named Cowboy Smith X. And he's like, just as an aside, like a really cool dude. And he has this, uh, film production company called Noir Foot, which is obviously a play on, uh, you know, his people's, um, people's name for themselves. Uh, and so, you know, he actually was the one we were talking and he, uh, he was the first person who articulated it that way. He said, you know, we are a post-apocalyptic post people. And as soon as he said it, I just had an aha moment because I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. That is a perfect encapsulation of, um, you know, a, a large swath of, of what it means to be native, because we, you know, have inherited this continent, continent size theft of, you know, our land, the, the loss of many of our languages and cultures. Um, and, you know, this effort uh, to culturally, and then often, you know, in, in much more morbid terms, even than that, to, to annihilate us. Um, you know, from the societies that have now, you know, inherited lands that were all once ours, places that were all once ours. And, you know, I think that one of the crazy things about the United States is that that 
baseline fact, um, you know, the founding of this country that is, you know, 98% not um, indigenous to this continent um, is just a, is like, it's like the water that we're swimming in, you know, it's like, um, it's like that question that, um, you know, about the fish and does it know the water that it's swimming in? It's like everywhere, but, um, you know, it is just, it goes unacknowledged so often. And so much of, I think being a, a native writer or, or person is about the constant um, sort of reminder that this is the water that we're, we're swimming in here on this, on this land. That you have to have that constant reminder. You write, uh, to be indigenous to North America is to be part of a post-apocalyptic community and experience. Indigenous journalists have always grappled with earth-shattering stories, either as historical background to current events or in the deep despair of the still unfolding legacy of indigenous dispossession, displacement, and death that brought nations like the United States and Canada into being. This perspective tests the limits of journalism, asking reporters to cover marginalized subjects unfamiliar to most readers with an eye on the people's histories and systems buried and erased by colonization, all without losing the thread of the narrative, which sounds incredibly challenging. How can that erasing of indigenous history by colonization, how or even can it be overcome through journalism? Yeah, that's exactly the question that I ended up sort of circling around in my essay. Um, and I think that that is, you know, uh, one of the fundamental challenges that uh, reporting on and writing about what we've just described, right? This post-apocalyptic experience, experience in a now uh, potentially new apocalyptic experience around around climate change, um, you know, sort of raises, right? Like, are how do you? how do you in the space of an article, which, you know, quite often the assignments you get as a journalist are like a thousand words, 1500 words, um, unless you're writing a future, you know, that's sort of the limit. Um, you know, how do you convey that breadth of history, which can go back hundreds of years, um, you know, bring to life people and characters who are among the most forgotten in society. You know, there are very, very limited sort of touch points um, for the, the today's reader on contemporary native people. You know, I mean, like most people still think that we, you know, are um, living in teepees or, or from the past in some sort of sense. Uh, and how do you do all of that at the same time as you, you know, report the news, like the, the current events that are of, um, you know, interest today. And it's just a lot to try to squeeze into an article, basically. Um, and I think that often, you know, the, the, just the sheer size of it, um, the sheer size of the truth really uh, sometimes defies the sort of discipline that you have to try to put around it to make it fit into that space of an article or a piece. And, um, I think that that was basically the, the sort of nut idea of the, uh, of the essay was that, um, was that sometimes I think nonfiction fails in, especially on this subject in that, in that endeavor to sort of convey and capture the truth in, in a concise narrative. Well, what, what happens to journalism when it's so focused or any story when it's so focused first on disproving misconceptions about its subjects? What happens to the story when you 
have to explain how the biases and stereotypes the audience has of the subject are false in order for them to understand the story? Does that it, does it distract from the story? Does it actually undermine the story in giving historical context? Yeah, so the one thing that I've thought about a little bit is um, that to a certain extent also the need to write for a reader who is you know, probably unfamiliar with much of this history. And, and to tell you the truth, like I, I obviously don't know every piece of indigenous history. Like I often learn new things when I go out and report these stories. Um, but the need to like sort of confront that um, assumed lack of knowledge and, and you know, that, that ignorance um, to a certain extent, like recenters, right, um, a colonial perspective, right? If I'm writing for a reader who I assume is non-native, um, or you know, writing for a broad audience which will include non-natives, uh, and need to explain this deep history, um, I am to a certain extent, you know, recentering uh, a colonial sort of perspective here in the assumption that um, you know this is not something that they know or feel. Um, which I think is really fascinating, right? Like, why is it that so much of contemporary society, which has come to inherit, um, you know, in various ways, certainly through land, but also through the names of many states, you know, the, the, the indigenous presence on this continent is, is actually in some ways all around us. I mean, like how many folks drive around, you know, deep Grand Cherokees and stuff like that. But at the same time, uh, so like, you know, there is this, this, this sort of haunting memory of native people that still exists on this continent. But at the same time, um, you know, if you're not native, you don't have to really think about that very much. Uh, and so I, I think it's a very, I don't really know what to do with it. It's actually kind of unsettling to me that at the end of the day, I still have to um, write, write in a way that contends with and tries to undo uh, that that erasure of, of our people. Sorry, you also uh, quote Kyle White, a uh, citizen Potawatomi philosopher and professor of environment and sustainability at the University of Michigan, describing the challenge facing indigenous journalists, saying, in the space of a short piece that's widely accessible, how do you write in a way that includes a structural analysis and a sense of history that many readers don't initially understand? Considering all of those challenges that journalists have in covering indigenous issues, how dangerous can journalism be to indigenous people? I think that the, the risk um, is, of course, that, you know, our story gets abused again. Um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, but how many writers have um, in American history written native people out of the narrative how many writers have approached the this material and um you know in their own small way through omitting us you know contributed to uh the legacy of of, of genocide and the you know culture of forgetting uh that has made it okay um on the other hand though you know i thought what part of what's intriguing to me also about what Kyle said, which also was a sort of aha moment for me where he like it captured a thing that I had also been, um, you know, feeling uh, in a way that I did not have the words for at the time, uh, is that it is like a challenge in another sense, right? Like the fact that, 
Um, this is such a big, primarily unacknowledged um, reality and that very few nonfiction writers have even tried to, to sort of bring it all together. There's definitely some who have done it and who have done it well. Um, you know, it makes it into a, to a certain extent sort of a worthy challenge for, um, you know, a journalist to try to tackle, which, you know, I think that on some level, right, like we all want to think that we're doing things that are challenging us in our creativity and our craft, particularly if we're sort of writers. Um, and so, you know, the flip side of, of this big, this big issue um, is that it, it feels like a worthy thing to try to tackle and um, I've been very fortunate to get to do that over the last number of years in my early career as a, as a writer. And you describe how you called uh, Candace Callison, an associate professor at the University of British Columbia School of Journalism and a member of the Tahitian people, or Tahitan people, sorry. And you uh, write how she described her preferred approach as systems journalism, a methodology that treats news items not as isolated events, but as windows into what's happening in underlying systems and structures. I found this fascinating. So, Julian, is systems journalism more than any and beyond who, what, when, where, why, and how? Is it more than just reporting events? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I think um, Candace is tall tan. I think that's the correct pronunciation, but I have to admit, I Thank also you. don't always get all of the First Nations pronunciations right. There's... Um, over 500 of them in the U.S. alone and another 600 up in Canada. Uh, so let's see. You know, I think that what's interesting about that, right, is like at the end of the day, if you want to interpret facts and, and put them into an argument and a narrative, you need some sort of intellectual scaffolding that they can fit into. Um, and what I thought, it, what I think is interesting about this notion of systems journalism that Candace Callison um, you know, who's, who's really brilliant, explained to me, is that you can think about the events that you report on as, you know, windows into these broader structures. And I think that that kind of approach to journalism, um, you know, taking an event and then trying to elucidate the systems and structures around it that, you know, make that phenomenon happen, maybe make it even common in our world, um, you know, we talked about an example of this earlier with uh, the way that Native people are uh, more vulnerable to climate change, um, you know, the socioeconomic, um, you know, inequalities that we face, et cetera. You know, how would you take, you know, one person's anecdote and experience with that and use it to, you know, elucidate this broader structure that um, many people are probably unaware of? And I think that that's a very interesting way to think about, um, you know, what journalism can do. And uh, I, I think that, you know, maybe we'd be um, we'd be more pleased with the state of the media if it was if it was taking that approach more often. And you write as a model, Callison pointed to the work of Tanya Talaga. An Anishinaabe journalist, Talaga, a former investigative reporter at the Toronto Sun, or Star, sorry, is the author of Seven Fallen Feathers, which examines the deaths of seven First Nations youths in the town of Thunder Bay, Ontario. To tell stories about immense pain and loss, Talaga developed close relationships with her sources, many of whom she keeps in touch with today. And you quote Callison saying, be careful, be kind, be respectful, and listen. There's nothing worse than being one of those journalists who crashes in and out of a community, takes a story, and leaves. Is systems journalism then more like a 
a social worker than a first responder? Is systems uh, journalism, is is the journalist far more involved in the lives of the subjects and what impact it can have that have on, let's say, objectivity? Yeah, I think that's a really good, that's a really good question. Um, I would say that, you know, often to do the kind of reporting that I've been very fortunate to do in Indian country, um, you know, you have to, your source network isn't just a source network. It's really, in fact, a broader community in which you, you are part. Um, and many, many, you know, one of the reasons why I even get the opportunity to, to report and write some of the stories that I do is because I'm, you know, seen as part of that broader community. Um, I think it's, you know, reasonable to ask, um, you know, whether or not that might, um, uh, you know, call into question, you know, my capital O um, uh, objectivity. But at the same time, you know, I mean, like, what are political reporters, if not part of, you know, the broader community community of political elites? You know, what are um, reporters on any any beat, but you know, part of part of that uh, network and community of of professionals? And at the end of the day, you know. Um, can we really say that there is some notion of like fully removed uh, from the story, from the world objectivity? Um, and I would, I would lean towards no um, in, in answering that question. I know that there's a bigger debate about that going on in among journalists and at places like the Columbia Journalism Review. But my view uh, tends to be that, you know, in, you, even to be able to access other people's truths, um, you implicate yourself uh, in the story and the gathering of the information, uh, which takes a lot of trust. One of the things I don't really understand is um, there's always this issue of helicoptering in, of journalists just coming in, reporting a story, and then leaving. And you uh, mentioned that when you talk to Wabgishig Rice, a member of the Wasaksing First Nation, who produced a broadcast and radio pieces for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, for 14 years. He said, white journalists assigned to indigenous or marginalized communities think about the story until the end of the day. While they might be empathetic, their relationship to the story is different. You get to go home when you're comfortable and white, and it's not there anymore. It's not there until the next time you're assigned to one of those stories. So why don't places like CBC simply, instead of helicoptering in a reporter, have a Native Canadian, First Canadian Bureau? Why don't they just hire locals to report on local issues? Yeah, so I, first I would say that the CBC has, in more recent years, uh, created a CBC Indigenous desk that is dedicated to that exact kind of thing. Um, but the other side of this, right, is that that kind of deeply sourced reporting where the reporter is embedded in a community and, you know, has their trust and is able to get um, really incredible stories out of it also requires a lot of resources. And, you know, one of the, uh, you know, and this is, should be obvious to anyone who's been following the media, but one of the real tragedies that's happening in journalism right now is that fewer and fewer communities and particularly communities um, that don't have significant media markets, you know, have local journalism anymore, have local journalists who are covering the courts, who are 
um, you know, writing about the local school system who are covering city hall, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, that makes it, um, it that makes it that much harder to, to build um, the sort of trust that then, you know, opens the doors for, um, you know, really enlightening stories. Uh, and I think that we really got to figure out how to, how to address that problem. Um, because, you know, as we're seeing, you know, as people become less and less trustful of the media, as the media becomes this thing that's increasingly centered in New York or Washington, D.C., um, you know, they turn to alternative sources, which might be feeding them outright lies and, and conspiracy theories. And, you know, once the truth uh, is, is not known to a large number of the population, I think that we, you know, start slipping towards, um, you know, pretty dark places, uh, you know, potentially fascistic places. So, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, like that thing that Wob had his, had his finger on, you know, the ability to to be part of the story or to, sorry, not to be part of the story, but to be, um, you know, in a trusting relationship with the community and to really live in that story and be connected to it. Uh, you know, I think is, is, is increasingly not a thing that is seen in, in the media and in journalism. I think that the consequences are, are being felt all over the place now. But there's been, and as you know, there's been a huge decline in the amount of investigative journalism. People just want to churn things out and have content popping up at their site or wherever as much as possible. So, so how much are resources an obstacle to systems journalism? I mean, an investigative journalism piece, or I would imagine a systems journalism piece, would take a lot of time and take a lot of effort, and it is doesn't necessarily fall within the brevity that you want to that a lot of corporate journalists out journalism outlets want to have. So, to what degree are resources an obstacle to systems journalism? I think that it's a huge. I think it's a huge obstacle to not just systems journalism, but just like good reporting, right? Like the fact that there are many journalists who have an expectation that they're going to write. An article a day, or maybe even more, um, and churn those out so that the you know uh, the corporation can uh, sell as many ads as possible and and make the whole you know um, operation somewhat lucrative uh, is is really harming the quality of journalism. And you know I have to hope that if we go out there and we produce really outstanding work, that there will be an audience for it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not on the business side of the operation. Um, and, you know, my, my hope would be that there are folks on the business side of the operation um, or, you know, maybe folks in the nonprofit world who see the value of, of good journalism and, you know, are willing to fight the sort of lowest common denominator market tendency to, you know, transform things increasingly into just content producing machines. You write how more often than not you are convinced that reality defies the disciplined space of stories, waging an epistemic resistance against the tyranny of language, text, and form, something we need, we Indians can relate to. Has the news in that sense, especially in a time of crisis when we need the historical content, context to better understand and respond to the crises we face and will be facing, has the news become not only archaic, but obsolete? I, you know, as someone who 
I guess is still sometimes producing news or things that could get consumed in the media. I certainly hope not. Um, I certainly hope not, but maybe, you know, in, a, in one sense, maybe there is a need and, you know, maybe this is one way to interpret the essay that I wrote. Maybe there is a need to sort of reimagine what journalism is and can be um, either by, you know, getting back to sort of an older form of journalism, which I would be hesitant about because, uh, you know, an older form of journalism was even less inclusive of indigenous peoples and, and people like me and writers like me. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's, there's one form of like, we need to save journalism by getting it back to its, you know, small town, um, you know, sort of its local roots with the paper boy and all that sort of stuff. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to that, except for the fact that it, you know, that form of journalism didn't include very many native people or people of color um, or cover our issues for that matter. Uh, but, you know, maybe there's like some new form of, of news and media that, you know, we haven't seen or conceived of yet that can better tackle some of the, the sort of challenges and limits um, that I, I brought up in this Columbia Journalism Review piece. And I don't know, maybe someday I'll be interviewing someone else really smart, like Cowboy Smith X or Candace Callison or Kyle White, and, and they'll, you know, they'll hit the nail on the head on that one. And, um, you know, I'll have something new to talk to you guys about. So uh, just a couple more questions for you. First, why just I know you've touched on this throughout our conversation today, but I just want to make sure people understand this. Why is native storytelling not compatible with broadcasting and with the kind of news you get from broadcast outlets? I think that you have to cover an immense amount of ground that often takes you back, you know, centuries, even sometimes at the same time as you have to cover the news of the day. And, uh, you know, you, in order to tell these stories, you often have to develop trusting relationships with your sources. Uh, and, you know, very often Native people are very distrustful of other people coming in to their communities and trying to tell their stories because our, our stories have been, you know, so abused for so many years. I think that that's really the core of it. One last question for you, Julian, and as always, it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with writer Julian Brave Noisecat, who wrote the Columbia Journalism Review article, Apocalypse Then and Now. You can find out more about Julian at julianbravenoisecat.com, and you can follow Julian on Twitter at jnoisecat. That's the letter J's, J followed by the words noisecat. And this is Julian's third appearance on This Is Hell. You can find all of our conversations with Julian by going to our website and searching on his name. Our question from hell for you, Julian, is probably the most hellish question. Uh, to you, what explains why the people of the United States are so unwilling to recognize that their nation is the result of colonization, genocide, and settlement, and that some, and that same imperialism from which it benefits has been a major contributor to climate change. Why are, America, why are people from the United States so unwilling to recognize that history? You know, I think that there is a very powerful set of narratives that, you know, obscure that truth. America likes to think of itself still to a certain extent as that city on a hill, um, you know, an exceptional place where liberty and freedom um, have rung out, where we may have had, you know, racial injustice in the past, but we did, you know, civil rights, et cetera. 
And I think that people don't like to confront the ugly realities of our history. And I think that this one is particularly challenging because, you know, what do you do about the fact that an entire continent was stolen from its first peoples and that it was stolen in very bloody ways to make this, this country, you know, stand today? Um, it doesn't have a, a neat, um, you know, potential solution that 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 fits harmoniously with that, uh, you know, city on a hill narrative. And you know, at the end of the day, I think that we are well adapted as humans to, um, you know, not deal with the messy truths. We we prefer you know uh, much more tidy uh, stories. Julian, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. You know I'm going to be annoying you in the future to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. This article at Columbia Journalism Review is great, and people should check out all of your work over at julianbravenoisecat.com. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on again. Really appreciate it. Okay, take care, Julian. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast at the same place shortly after tomorrow on Patreon. We are playing another interview from right around 15 years ago to the day when we are playing our 2006 talk with Mohammed Sahimi, professor of chemical engineering at the University of Southern California, who had just then written the Los Angeles Times piece, Diffusing Iran with Democracy, a piece he wrote with 2003 Nobel Peace Prize winner Shirin Abadi. Mohammed had written extensively on Iran's nuclear energy program, and he and Shirin argue that respect for human rights in a democratic political system are the most effective deterrent against the threat that any aspiring nuclear power including Iran, may pose to the world. They also point out it is simply absurd for the U.S. and the most important nation in the Middle East to not communicate directly. And they warn that the Bush administration should not be seduced by exile groups with no support in Iran. Developing democracy is an internal affair, not something that is supposed to be imposed on people by the barrel of a gun. Yep, 15 years ago, we had guests telling us how respect for the internal development of democracy was a better way toward peace than sanctions and the constant threat of war. It's a gentle reminder of what an anti-war movement and alternative looked like and how awesome it would be to have an anti-war movement again. I really miss that anti-war movement. It was really cool. Meanwhile, during my weekly Friday Patreon monologue, I will be reviewing exactly what we learned, or at least what I learned from our guests this month in the past in the past, every year, maybe then it was every six months, then it was every three months, we would tell you what we had learned on the show, but we've been learning so much that those annual, biannual, seasonal reviews were taking up way too much time on our live streaming show. So starting tomorrow, we will end every month of the Patreon podcast that includes a review of what we have learned during that month. But you can only hear our conversation with Muhammad and my monologue by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell in a few minutes. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff will be watching the detectives. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, uh, yeah, I did. Uh, but first, I looked up that story you mentioned at the top of the show, and it is true that that Discord server Wall Street Bets was using was banned for hate speech at just the same moment they happened to be very coincidentally costing hedge funds millions of dollars. <laughs> and also now, the platforms that people are using to buy those stocks are also being restricted too. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't want to advocate for free speech or anything opposing <laughs> the power of big tech or corporations because that would be fascist of me. Mm -hmm. So, this week's question from hell is, 
What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? Jeff G says, what do we want? Gradual change. When do we want it? <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> Jamie K says, Hoffman lenses. <laughs> That's great. Garrett L says, dancing on the razor's edge between tragedy and farce. <laughs> and I got a bunch of ones via Twitter, DM, etc., etc. that I'll do after Jeffy. You can leave your answer to this week's question out on our Facebook page. Tweet it to us, you know, whatever. Email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the time that Jeff's done with the moment of truth. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time. Watching the detectives. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I don't know how many of you have been able to isolate in place, as they say, but I have, except for a few duties I need to leave the house for to replenish my supply of dollars or to keep myself out of the penal system. This is life for me now. Wake up at 4 a.m. with the terrifying realization that the far right wingers in government, law enforcement, secret law enforcement, the military, the secret military, the judiciary, and the secret judiciary behind the January 6th beer hat putsch, or whatever you want to call it, have been plotting an actual behind-the-scenes palace coup. And one day we could wake up to find ourselves in a literal, old-school, regimented fascist dictatorship rather than the late-stage capitalist, neoliberal, indoctrinating, labor and resistance-retarding, discourse-co-opting oligarchy with a human face we're currently scurrying and scrambling under. So I open my laptop, rejoin whatever British detective procedural I'd fallen asleep in the middle of the night before, and fall asleep in the middle of that. Detective shows lull me, because I have absolutely no emotional investment in them except the ones where the killer has imprisoned the victim before killing them and is torturing them <coughs> or keeping them alive in the ground with a hose for them to breathe through. I don't like watching things from the victim's point of view for too long. It makes me empathize with the victim, which in turn makes me root for the cops. And I hate rooting for cops. I like when the show is about a private eye or an ex-cop who's always in the way of the cops and always showing them up. I also liked The Shield because it was about a dirty cop whose dirtiness got less and less justifiable as the series went on. And I wasn't crazy about the cop establishment he was clashing with and which eventually spat him out either. Shows with private eyes who live by their own moral compass, except in their personal lives which are hot messes and ethical corners they have to cut when backed up against financial straits, those are good to find based as they are on the Sam Spade noir model. Quirky detectives, overweight detectives, alcoholic detectives, detectives with photographic memories, they're always entertaining. And there's the odd couple buddy shows. A drunk womanizing slob from Denmark paired with an OCD Swede. Or a slightly loose Brit and an autistic Belgian. The important thing is that the show focused more on the interpersonal conflicts than the actual crimes, which run from the sadistic to the desperate. When they started putting on shows from an edgily likable serial killer's point of view, I tried to join in on the fun, but it just got too sickening too quick. 
The goal of watching this garbage is escape. Identifying with a sociopathic killer is a change of pace, granted, but the amount of effort a writer, director, and actor are putting into basically training me to see the world through the eyes of a pathologically violent dehumanizing murderer and the time I spend undergoing this psychological experiment could perhaps be better spent in less transformative endeavors, like watching one old cop demonstrate to another old cop that he still has all his original teeth, not even a filling, and the other examining and replying, Oh, yeah, yeah, you had a white one, you'd have a whole snooker set. But like I said, I fall asleep during that, wake up a second time at about 7.30, dick around on Facebook and Twitter until This Is Hell comes on the live stream and I get all edified. Learn about things I had no idea about, like the slave wars in the Caribbean, or things I haven't kept up on, like what's been going on with the Flint water crisis, or new angles on old ideas, like how the division between black liberalism and black radicalism reframes discourse and rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis race and oppression. During that time, I deal with coffee, medication, and food, and I get worked up and invested in the interview, and after Chuck reminds me that everybody's stupid and I calm down, I read something that's caught my eye, like a brief history of money, or some articles on puppetry in the French opera these days, or clowning in Weimar Germany, or cultural mingling and antagonism in Stone Age Asia. I might even crack a novel like a satire about an underground society of Japanese river spirits by the author of Rashomon, or a science fiction, or even a quasi-canonical classic of some sort. And I might do some spreadsheet work for someone interspersed with laundry or other errands. Maybe get in an argument or two on one of the popular argument generators. And I get worked up again. And I calm back down again. Eventually I end up back looking for entertainment. Escapist entertainment. The last thing I want to do is confront moral issues. At least that was the case before the old regime fell. Now I feel it might be time for that new regime to prosecute the crimes of the old, at least maybe the ones from a couple weeks ago. Even so, there's bigger fash to fry. There's the global pandemic and the equally global climate crisis, among others. But still, and I don't think I'm alone in this, there's a sentiment floating about that if we let the Confederacy get away with this current iteration of its acting out against multicultural Enlightenment values, we're just inviting future trouble. And maybe that's how I've come to gravitate to three shows about exorcism and the Catholic Church. There's a 2008 British drama, Apparitions, about a priest, Father Jacob, who left the exorcism racket but is drawn back in by provocations from Satan, including the killing of his friends. I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing at first. It really was about a profane force versus its opposite. The priest himself has his flaws, but is on the whole admirable, yet the show pushes into uncomfortable territory, for me at least, about faith and the existence of evil without any mitigation, just pure evil. And even though I know Dick Cheney exists, I still don't believe in pure evil. Then there's the show from right here in the USA, Evil which teams up a kind of exorcist midwife aspiring priest and the secular-minded psychologist he's hired to keep himself honest. 
They're pitted against various demons, especially one recurring somewhat effeminate one who gets it on with the psychologist's mother, Christine Lottie. There's some good character stuff in the show with the psychologist's four daughters, who are an amazing ensemble. I would watch a show just about them chasing ghosts Scooby-Doo style. There's sexual tension between the beefcake priest and the level-headed, sexy-cause-she's-competent psychologist, and there are special effects, which I always like, and some well-done humor, although it can be hit or miss in some episodes. And the latest show to blatantly walk the tenuous, blurry line of blasphemy is 30 Coins, a show from Spain, filmed on location in the village of Pedranza, Segovia. The cast is remarkably fit. The mayor is the ripped actor who played the Spanish-Mexican ripped actor in Sense8, that Wachowski Sisters series about a multicultural, multiracial, multigender orgy of telepaths scattered around the world. He's even more ripped than this one, and his shrewish wife would be very cute if she weren't constantly compared by both the mayor's gaze and the cameras to Elena, the comely young widow with a body that just won't quit. Elena and the mayor haven't so much as kissed yet, but they keep teetering on the edge. The wife is jealous, though, because the mayor's phone goes off at inopportune times. It's always Elena and something about a paranormal occurrence. And the no-poker-faced mayor sure comes off as if he's carrying on an affair, regardless of their mutual chastity. You kind of want to smack him, even if just for the intimacy of the mauling he'd give you in return. Speaking of mauling, the real bear of the show is Padre Manuel Vergara, a short but beefy hunk of a man who looks like he was drawn by Jack Kirby, except for his haggard face fringed with a graying beard. Padre Vergara has tattoos on his back, scars on his face and scalp, and takes whatever frustrations he has out on a heavy bag hanging from a beam in the sacristy. He, like our two other priest protagonists, has a jaded past with exorcism. He's come to Pedranza to get away from the hurly-burly horrors of Rome and to hide from something evil, something perhaps even in the church's hierarchy. The show has reanimated corpses, demon possession, and a few other mad surprises that really shine juxtaposed with the setting of medieval ruins and a contemporary but still rustic farming community. It's significant that these shows can have flawed, complex heroes who are pitted against pure evil. Evil is certain, fights dirty, and is strong. Good is often uncertain, often unarmed for battle, and usually plays by the rules. And two of these shows about fighting pure evil come out. They came out last year. And it's no coincidence that over the last couple decades, Europe and the U.S., along with Australia and who knows where else, have seen a rise in neo-fascism. And fascists keep recriminating against all reasonable pushback from anti-fascists with the sarcastic, so much for the tolerant, laughed. And yet it is exactly to the ideal of tolerance that they appeal when society pushes back on their incitements to violence, racism, and the old tropes that 100 years ago brought Mussolini into Sicily. The white nationalists want multiculturalism and tolerance for white people Fascism and white supremacy for everyone else. Just like the capitalists want socialism for billionaires and rugged individualism for everyone else. Just like the cops want peaceful protests against police violence. 
and even then they might use their violence against you if they're offended. Maybe these Catholic Manichaean themes are showing up to prepare us, condition us to fight back, to push that Overton window to include not just punching this or that Nazi, not just deplatforming this or that demagogue and his chorus of supporters, but a flat-out rejection of the arguments that allowed merchants to originally enslave and sell humans that set this country on literal fire in the middle of the 19th century and that led to wars in Asia, Africa, and the Southern Americas for freedom from colonialism, wars that continue to this very day. This is exhausting. I need to relax in front of the TV. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. Thank you, Jeffy. And we're up against the clock, so I got to let you go, oh, my friend. You are. I, I know. One thing. One thing. What's that? I got my second shingle shot yesterday, and I couldn't sleep at all last night. I was just like achy and hor- it was horrible. Well, it's like, better I than shingles, I can tell you that. Yes, that's what I hear. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> all right, take all right. care. You too. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Alex, please share the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? I can hear your smile while you're reading that question. This is being confronted with my own laziness on a Monday morning <laughs> when I couldn't think of a good question. Uh, Flying Needle says, Dude, this week's question from hell makes me feel like I'm in an Escher painting of me pointing a video camera at the TV screen it was relaying to tripping out over here. Oops, I missed my button. Uh, Max H says, societal collapse. And finally, Hypocrite Reader, who has a new issue out in the last week, so check them out at hypocritereader.com. After excessive polling and focus group testing, our scientists believe that they've arrived at the optimal answer. Bong hits for Jesus. I liked Jamie's answer of Hoffman lenses, Mike saying late-stage, self-referential, collectivist, esoteric snark. Joshua saying, this is not arugula, this is kale, because that's just silly. Grillagramophonics saying a profoundly obvious tautology, pithily phrased. Peter saying the best answer to this week's question from hell is this one. That's the answer. And Aaron saying Elon Musk is an a-hole. Those were some of my favorites. Or anything really stick out to you, Alex? I'm just glad no one says my mom. (laughs) uh, I'll defer to you on this one. I'm going with Hoffman lenses, in case you're not aware of what that is. That is a reference to Albert Hoffman, who is the inventor of um, the first person who took LSD. So, Jamie, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? Jamie's answer was Hoffman lenses. You have won your choice of whatever merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Then send us your mailing address and tell us what piece of merchandise you want, Jamie, and we'll get your stuff to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell, is, obviously, Biden, the last sexist president. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Special thanks to everyone who joined us on Patreon this week and all the people who went to thisishell.com and clicked on to support to show your appreciation for a completely listener funded this is hell we start every week's live streaming shows here at this is hell.com with alex revealing this week's hangover cure this week's cure is denial thanks to all of this week's guests including attorneys 
Flint Taylor and Jeff Haas, co-authors of The Truth Out Story, new documents suggest J. Edgar Hoover was involved in Fred Hampton's murder. Thanks to editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who has a new film out called Dismantling Brazil, Bolsonaro's Neoliberal Agenda, which is available through Redfish Documentaries, and you can find on YouTube. Thanks to yesterday's guest reporter Anna Clark, who wrote the ProPublica article, The Unfinished Business of Flint's Water Crisis. Anna is the author of the award-winning book, The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy. And we've had Flint... Brian and Anna on the show in the past, as well as today's guest, Julian Brave Noise Cat. So you can find interviews at thisishell.com with each and every one of this week's guests. Again, thanks thanks to Julian Brave Noise Cat, who wrote the Columbia Journalism Review article, Apocalypse Then and Now. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our interview from nearly 15 years ago to the day with Mohammed Sahimi, who had just posted the Los Angeles Times article, Def- Defusing Iran with Democracy a piece he wrote with 2003 Nobel Peace Prize winner Shirin Abadi, and I will tell you what I've learned over our first month of shows here on in 2021, but you can only hear all that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon and listening tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.